Well, you've made the oh. fancy ginger tea. I have. That has turmeric and other weird stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to work in last name there, like too many turmeric. Ah, that's what that happening. hesitation was. Yeah. It's just when Tom gets quiet and he looks at you, you know something's going on. <laughs> I was hoping by the end of my smile I would have something and turn out to be just a weird smile. Well, <laughs> happens to the best of us. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So Steph, how's it going? Pretty good. I am wrapping up a feature that has taken me about a week to work on. And it was originally pointed for two points was our estimation for it. And Is two the lowest number of points in your system or is there a one point? No, it's not. So we do have one point. Okay. So we do one, two, four, and eight. And eight is a sign that the ticket's too big and too many unknowns, and we need to scope it down and break it into smaller chunks of work. So it feels like a pretty good, like, small, medium, large system with Mm -hmm. an extra large being sort of like the danger, danger kind of territory. And so this one is at two points. So we knew it would take a little bit of time, higher than one. But it's taken me a full week, which I didn't expect based on the estimation. And while that's been fine, like, while I myself and the client team doesn't take estimations too seriously, there's still been this sort of, like, dark cloud that's been over me about it where I haven't mentally accepted the facts or reset my expectations like this ticket did have more work involved to it there was more to work through and that's completely reasonable I still feel guilty that it took so long I've been reflecting on that and if I wonder if other people have similar experiences with estimation points if it's something that like sort of carries forward with a person and could make them feel not great about their work I think I've definitely experienced that in the past, something that the group collectively thought would take a small amount of time and for either good or less good reasons. Like maybe someday I'm just not on or I take a a not great path to start it and then I'm like, ah, I got to unwind all of that and redo it. In that case, it's sort of quote unquote my fault, but I think that's all just baked into the work. And yeah, I definitely, for either of those reasons, I feel the same sort of specter, which is one of the reasons that I find estimation complicated. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel very strongly about like we can be wrong. Like that's fine. But yet for some reason, even being in this wrong and having ownership of the work, then like I just carry that forward with me. This feeling of like, oh, this should have like taken less time when in reality, my current self knows way more than my previous self did when I was trying to estimate the work. So I've just been thinking about that. But I'm also super excited that it's about done. So on a different topic, something else that I discovered recently, I was reviewing code uh, for another person and they used a function that I wasn't familiar with in Rails. And it's really cool because it's something that helps protect us from timing attacks and something that I wasn't familiar with until now. So to kind of explain the timing attack and then I'll go into like what the Rails feature is, it helps guard against this. There's a really interesting, clever way that someone could use a timing attack to figure out a secure key. So for example, if we have an API that accepts an API key from a client and we validate that the key matches our expectation and then we know that client's authorized. And then in other cases where someone is sending a token and then our system is validating it, the way our system is validating or often validating that string is it's checking each character in that string. And 
As soon as our program finds a character that doesn't match the provided string, then it's going to return an error. So there's a very clever way that someone that's very patient who wants to analyze that response to know exactly when the system failed or when the system erred out. Like, did it get past the first couple of characters and then it erred? Did it get past just the first one? So then over time, someone might figure out, okay, I sent all these requests and these took longer. So I think the first character I know is the letter G. And then they could slowly build from there. So while I don't want to watch the world burn, I think that's really cool. (laughs) Like, I think it's really neat when there's just ways that people have thought of, like, clever ways to find information or find security holes and systems. But then the very nice side to that is that there's a, a way that we can guard against it. So Rails and the security utilities has provided a method that's called fixed link secure compare. And while this one does the same thing, it's going to analyze each character in the string, and then it's going to return an error based on if the strings don't match. It is going to error right away as soon as it realizes the two string lengths don't match. So someone could still find out like, okay, I sent it a string of like eight characters. It's expecting a string of 10 characters. So it gave me back an error. So I could find out how long the string is supposed to be, but I wouldn't have a way of finding out each character that's supposed to be in the string. So I thought that was really cool. That's something I definitely want to start using going forward, and it's something that I haven't been using. There's also another one that's called Secure Compare, and I think that's been around in Rails since, like, Rails 4. But that one, they do highlight in the Rails documentation to say, hey, this could expose information to those trying to exploit the timing-based attack. And then in Rails 5.2, I want to say, is when they've introduced the fixed link Secure Compare, where it will check to make sure the strings match, and if it doesn't, it immediately just errors. So then that way it knows like it can't like accidentally leak any timing information. Interesting. I think I've only used the secure compare and good to know that that one is I should level up my game and find the other fixed link secure compare. But yeah, that's it's so nice that those are built into Rails and that we have them. So that's cool that you're using secure compare because I wasn't even familiar with that one. Do you know what some of the benefits are of secure compare? And I asked that genuinely because I thought initially when I saw that method, I thought it was guarding against this time-based attack, but I realized it's not. And then that's why they introduced the fixed link secure compare. Let's I like how you clarify that. that you're not just trolling me here. Um, my understanding, the times that I found it, this is not something that like I, I know deeply. I think I looked up how to do API token type things in Rails, and the docs pretty quickly point you towards secure compare, as far as I remember. And my understanding was it had to do with timing attacks. And so being able to protect against that, which is also interesting in a Rails context, because my guess is the nature of responses are so variable anyway. Like if the garbage collector kicks in and has a pause at any given point or our database hiccups or any number of things, like the idea that our system is performing with such precision that if you just send enough requests, you can get that shape. But I think the idea is someone could automate this and just hammer away and have a bot sending a sequence of requests and just really brute forcing it until they get in there, which speaks to other security things like rate limiting and whatnot at a different layer of your application. But yeah, my understanding was secure compare was supposed to do timing attack stuff. So the idea that they're secure compare, but actually secure sort of worries me. But here we are. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a good point, too. I forgot. Yeah, rate limiting would certainly help. Although then someone just basically, you slowed someone down. Like they're going to have to wait for their rate to reset. And then they could keep hammering. I actually, I, I don't know the best practices around rate limiting. I feel like it's one of those core security things. I actually wonder if we have anything in the application security guide that Mike Burns wrote up. But I feel like more than just saying we will slow you down, there's some like we have noticed what we deem to be malicious behavior by this IP address. 
So we have now blocked that IP address for a period of time and then sort of exponential increasing of that. If you come back and you're immediately behaving in the same way, then you get backed off. Like I've definitely been backed off from, I want to say the GitHub API because I was messing around with it and then I did some script and I put too large of a like loop number in there. It's like, just go for a while. And eventually GitHub was like, no, calm down. You need to sit in the corner for a little <laughs> while. And I was like, that's fair, GitHub API. I get why you would say that to me. But it's one of those things that like, I've not seen that implemented in any of the Rails apps that I've worked on. I feel like often that would exist in like an API gateway or some piece of software like a routing layer in front of the application as opposed to in the app server, like the Rails code itself, our app's Rails code. Yeah, I feel like some of the times that I've seen rate limiting also applied is to encourage, like if they have like a paywall that they want to encourage people to purchase a different membership to have access to that API. So if it's a free API, but only like 100 requests a minute is free or something like that. And then if you want to use their system more extensively, then you have to purchase to have rights to use more of it. So yeah, those are good points as to ways that would help. And maybe I have used Secure Compare. It's one of those things that it's like, I just maybe I forgot about it, but I, I never used it from the perspective of I understood that it, this could help with timing attacks, although the Secure Compare itself can't, but the new one fixed link Secure Compare will help with that. I mean, it says Secure Compare in the name. Now I want to know what it does. It is confusing. <laughs> we can look it up if you want. So I think the difference is just Secure Compare is for whatever, and fixed length is if we're taking in an API token, which is always 40 characters, then we use fixed length secure compare because it adds another layer of protection. So they're similar methods, but one's a little like dial it up a little bit more because we have this additional piece of information. Yes. Okay. That makes way more sense. The first time I read through it, I misread it and thought it mentioned that it wasn't guarding against that. But that's much better than the version that I was thinking it was because the naming was confusing otherwise. So cool. Makes me feel better about having used Secure Compare in the past. But this is one of those examples of things in security land. There's a base level of knowledge that ideally we have, but then hopefully there is framework stuff that can kick in. And other folks are thinking much harder about these sort of problems. I think you were hinting at the interestingness of this. Like These problems are really fun to think about but I don't have enough time to think about them nearly enough. Like password hashing is one of the really interesting ones that every once in a while I'll go read a little bit more about. And the just like arms race on both sides of like, okay, we can use this hash function. Oh no, that's not good enough. Let's hash and salt. Let's have a pepper. Let's do these other things and just keep adding to the list. I thought the pepper thing was a joke for a while, but apparently it's a real thing. <laughs> Wait, I don't know this. What What is pepper? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Other than the actual pepper that you put on food. So a salt is a fixed string that is added per user. So say we have users restoring their password hashed in the database. Instead of just hashing their password, we also mix in a salt, which is a randomly generated sequence. And that makes sure if a user is using the password password, that hash will show up more commonly in our database because it's a more common password. So we want to make sure we're sort of rotating them all and moving them away from those common regular things. So there's this other bit of consistent randomness that we introduce into it. So that's the purpose of a salt, and it's unique per user. I believe a pepper is then one of those, but it's for the whole application. And now that I say it, I realize I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> let, me, let me look this one up and see if any of what I'm saying is true. Uh, in cryptography, a pepper is a secret added to an input such as password, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think it's just another one. So you, like, you take the password, you add some salt, you add some pepper. You mix it up in SHA-256 or whichever, bcrypt, scrypt. Those are probably the ones we're using now. 
uh, and you got yourself a stew. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, I like how you just turned this into a recipe. <laughs> you had a dash of salt, dash of pepper, and you got I mean, security. I do wonder how much humor there is in the name because I don't know of any like reason that these are the words that we use for these concepts, and they do seem to be talking about spices. Maybe salt meant something, and then someone was cute and came along with pepper, and then it started losing some meaning. I don't know. <laughs> But I imagine working in security is very much like other jobs where it feels intimidating and thinking that we don't have time to dig into all of the information and knowledge that goes into that world. But similar to like web development just depends like how much time of your day you're allocating to that work. So if you work for a security firm and you have more access and time to invest in this, then you'll learn a lot more which I always thought would be cool. I kind of wondered if I was going to go into more like DevOps security route instead of coming into like web development. And luckily with web development, I get to do a little bit of all of it. But I wondered if I wanted to go more heavily into those other jobs, but I ended up not going that route. Hmm. Similar path for me. It was something that I considered, but never have never really pursued or, or chosen to go after it anymore. But it's been like hobby side reading sort of thing. All right. We'll add it to retirement gigs. <laughs> we'll go into security. <laughs> And DevOps. (laughs) So circling back a bit to something that you'd mentioned last week or on the previous episode that sounded really interesting to me. I I can't remember exactly how it came up, but at one point you'd hinted towards like developer regrets or regrets that you'd had in your career as a developer. And I'd love to find out more. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So it was very much an offhand comment, but then you, in the moment, you seemed interested in it and then you followed up and you've sort of maybe come to terms with some of the regrets of my past. Uh, So I thought back through some previous projects and side projects and all the different things that I've worked on and tried to find any that stood out. And they sort of broke into a few different buckets. But I think I'll start with my favorite, which is the most like pointed, if least impactful. And that is regular expressions. There are two very specific times, and I'm pretty sure there are more, but there are two that stand out because they were recurring themes of really should not have used regular expressions for this thing that I use regular expressions for. So one was a client project where we were building an application that was consuming lots of text from another source of truth. That text was coming in as, I want to say it was XML, something like that, but it was XML formatting around prose. So around like sentences and paragraphs and things like that. And initially, we just wanted to split it up into sentences. That sounds easy, right? (laughs) Super easy. You just split it into sentences. It's one of those things that humans can say out loud and humans have an intuition about what that means. You're looking for a way to delimitate each one and then, okay. Yep. That yeah, is, so just that use a regular sound expression. No, you, sure. just, you throw one regular expression. I'm, I'm at with it. you. I'm bought in right now. And so then the one regular expression, uh, pretty quickly we realized, oh, that was like if you have a initials, then splitting on period is not going to work. Okay, so what if it's period space? Okay, cool. So now we've expanded our regular expression, and then there just kept being new additions. And then because we were within XML. Also, anyone who's paying attention here, obviously I've given away the ending, but it was a bad idea to start this way, but it just kept going. We kept evolving this regular expression. Actually, at some point turned into two regular expressions, maybe even three. We ended up scanning through the document in one direction using these two regular expressions and trying to like compare at boundaries. And we basically were building a very poor re-implementation of a parser. Uh, we should have just been building a parser from the get-go. That said, there is actually a really great tweet that Derek Pryor, who I was working on this project with, he tweeted at one point a screenshot of a series of Git commits that describe the evolution of this quote-unquote parser that we made. 
And he was highlighting the detail that myself, Derek, and Pat Brisbane, who was the third person working on this, had all put into our commit messages so that we could tell how this gnarly, ridiculous sequence of regular expressions turned into what they were. But really, the story is we should not have been using regular expressions. I regret that. Did you end up having to change it for that project to a parser, or did that continue to live on? We did not. It ended up being sufficient. It was imperfect, but it was sufficient, and we were able to get it to that place. But it was, if anything else had changed, if there had been just a little bit more complexity, basically we had absolutely topped out the complexity that the regular expressions could handle and the variety of things, and it was definitely broken for a handful of cases. That said, going back and writing the parser would have been a whole thing, and I'm I'm not even sure what I would reach for in terms of tooling in JavaScript to build a parser. Like I know of parsing libraries in other languages like Elm and Haskell, I've worked with them because it, it tends to be more of a concept in those worlds, but I don't know exactly. I'm sure there are plenty of packages, but then what does that do to the bundle size and how do we bring that into the system? So, yeah. I don't know why, but I kind of love that your first regret was related to regular expressions. <laughs> well, it's the most pointed of them. It's the most like clear, ugh, I should have known better. I did know better. I made the wrong choice. And then I also have since remade that wrong choice. There's a Vim plugin that I made that tries to figure out which factory bot factory your cursor is on in Vim and then open the relevant file. And that started out as a single regular expression. And then there were two. And now I think there are like four and it's just very bad. And so I've switched that and I'm trying to rebuild it using actually not a parser that I'm building, but shelling out to Ripper, I want to say. I think that's the one. That's the AST parser for Ruby. So basically just ask Ruby, hey, Ruby, what do you think this Ruby code is? And then go from there. It sounds a little bit like the sunk cost fallacy, where you started out with regular expressions because you're like, well, this is simple enough. Let me start this way, which seems like a great way to start. And then as soon as there started being additional requirements for the work, instead of like going back and sort of like scrapping all of it and dressing that right away, it's like you continue to build upon it because you don't want to have to go back and undo the work. So I, yeah, I totally see how like that's an easy thing to fall into. I think personally, that has definitely been true, but there's also, so in the like side project that I have, I'm the only one there. I don't have to convince anyone else of the time, but on actual projects where we have teams that are working on it and where we have a working system, the amount of confidence I have to have in the alternative approach in order to convince like, all right, this will stop the presses for a few minutes so that we can refactor fundamentally the way that we're doing this thing, but then it will be way more expressive and extensible and maintainable down the road. That's always a really hard conversation and one that you do have to weigh carefully because stopping the presses is a, it's a thing. Yeah, that is something I'm still working on for sure. One, analyzing the benefits. Is it worth, like as you said, to like stop the presses, to refactor? What's the cost versus benefit analysis here? And then also sharing that with the team and getting buy-in from them. It's a hard conversation to have. Sometimes it's really easy because everyone feels the pain and they are really into the idea of reducing some of that confusion or pain in the code. And then other times it's long conversation where then you might still like have to continue forward with the original path because other people haven't bought into the idea of like refactoring or changing the approach. So yeah, that's an ongoing skill that I'm building as well. I think that's one of those meta skills that hopefully we're always evolving and getting better at. So I think broadly to the, the question of regrets, there are plenty of times that I've regretted not making that decision at a given point in time. And then if you start to build on a foundation that's a little bit shaky more and more, it's that much harder to change out the foundation. Stretching an analogy far too thin, but yeah, it, it becomes more and more difficult as time goes on. And I've regretted not making the hard decision earlier many times. 
Yeah, I think I'm in that same space too. And I've at least gotten better at starting to trust my gut and recognize that if I think something's hard and it's something that's worth refactoring up front and paying that cost to go with that approach. But it's still, like you mentioned, it's hard when you have a team and you want to get buy-in from everyone. But I have noticed that when I feel that way in the beginning, that's typically how I will still feel, if not stronger, by the end, even pushing through like the existing path. So I'm also trying to trust that sense more and then also elevate it sooner to folks to then see if I can continue or if if the team is worried and I need to continue on without the refactor. So cool. Uh, So what else is on your list? So there's sort of a whole category that unfortunately I don't have as specific anecdotes in my mind, but I can remember broadly this sort of idea and the way I would sum them up is hubris or overconfidence. Some examples of specific things that I've done in the past are forking a gem building the wrong abstraction too early, thinking I understood, oh, okay, we've got two instances of this. It's cool. I'm going to make a meta framework within our system to handle all <laughs> versions of this moving forward. I was wrong. I did not know all of the different implications. And broadly, just cleverness, overly terse code, overly dense code. My code is much more boring these days to a large, large degree than, say, five years ago. I like how you say boring, because to me, boring is like clear. And I'm sure that's what you mean when you're saying boring, but I think it's such a valuable, like it's legible, it's readability, like it is like this high quality that I look for in code. So it's interesting how we also classify that as like, it's boring. It's not trying to be overly clever or dense. It's definitely a, a ThoughtBot ideal that took me a little while to adapt to or to accept. Like I remember coming to ThoughtBot and one of the things that we have in our guides, particularly to Ruby is postfix ifs. So having an if at the end of the line. I think in the guides, this may be something that's just said, or it may actually be in the guides, but it's avoid surprise ifs. And I love that nomenclature, this idea of like, as you're reading that line of code, suddenly your brain's like, oh, wait, I've now gotten to something that totally switches what I read already. Or if I don't scan all the way to the line and I just look at the beginning of it, I may scan past it just reading down like the indentation line, the the vertical column at the start of the line and trying to scan for something like, where's that condition? It's just hiding from me. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm also not a fan of those. And I'm a fan of everything being far more boring or upfront and prefixing it. Yeah, I also have strong feelings about the surprise ifs where I'm, I'm not in favor of reducing the amount of lines that I'm taking up. And I'd rather it be clear to the reader. But I like this whole kind of bucket that you've comprised of like the forking a gym and then as well as like having code that's overly clever, dense. Oh, goodness. The one where you do an abstraction too early. I relate to that one. That one has certainly happened to me as well. Uh, when you mentioned hubris, it made me smile just because I was thinking that this week I was thinking to myself, I was like, do I have an ego problem when it comes to some of my code? And I I thought about that because when I'm looking at code that I don't understand, if it's something that I think there's a guard clause and I don't understand why that guard clause there, I don't see how it's relevant to what's actually happening, I'll take it out. And then I experienced a lot of pain from that, from the work that I was completing, where I couldn't understand why a particular test was failing, because there was like this nuanced sort of exceptional case where that guard was actually very important, but it wasn't obvious to me in the code. So it took me a while to realize that that's what that guard was doing. But it intrigued me because my immediate reaction, I was like, well, if I don't understand you and I don't see your purpose, like you're gone, like I'm taking it out until it's proven that it needs to come back in. And after the pain that I felt from that, I was like, hmm, maybe I should, you know, simmer down a little (laughs) and like do the work first and then try to reevaluate where I can take out guards instead of doing it wholesale up front. 
I feel like my progression over the years has been very much like a pendulum swing sort of thing where I'm overcorrecting in one direction and then overcorrecting back in the other. And there are times where brazenly removing code has caused some pain, like I broke a production system or something like that. And so I slowed down. I became more careful, more conservative in those sort of changes. And then I felt the pain of we have a bunch of code that doesn't actually run, I'm pretty sure, but I'm not sure. And I can't remove it because we don't know, but it prevents refactoring of this other thing. And the whole system is just like the ability to change the system slows down. So then I'm immediately back into the, let's just delete anything I don't understand. And I feel like my swings back and forth have gotten smaller over time and I'm, I'm walking more of a middle road, but there's definitely whatever was the most recent experience is the thing that's sort of top of mind and actually trying to like quiet that voice down is I would say a goal, perhaps one that I'm not as good at as I'd like, but Trying to quiet the voice down of the most recent experience or the one that swings too hard in either direction? Uh, the most recent. So whichever swing I'm on is like that most recent voice of, oh, you deleted tests recently and that was very bad because then the system broke. It's like, I know, I know, but I've had plenty of other times where deleting the test was good and helped clean things up. And not that I'm broadly in favor of deleting tests. I like tests. <laughs> Just sometimes you have tests that don't offer value and then you clean them up. Yeah, I like that approach of not letting like the most recent incident impact like your considerations going forward. Not to say I'm good at that, just like that's a goal. That's a thing I'm aiming towards. <laughs> I like um, it. I think the other one is, and I think it sort of falls into the same camp as custom tooling, building our own thing. This is more something that I think happens team-wise. I, I don't know that I personally have gone off and just like, I made a thing, everybody. It's so great. We have our own task system or our own ORM or our own whatever. But I have been part of teams that have thought we knew better, thought we could make a better X and... My general experience with internal mini framework type things is the maintenance burden of them is so much more. There's no documentation. There's no. There's so many reasons not to do them. And typically the reason to do them is like, ah, well, the existing solutions are good, but they don't cover this one use case. And I'm more of the opinion now that like, do you really need that one use case like that bad? Because the cost is incredibly high. That feels like such an easy one to fall into as well. Those are types of decisions that from what I've seen, aren't typically made lightly, but it's a conversation around we need something to do this. There's no current solution that does exactly what we need. So we build our own, but it's given weighing the idea that we're going to have to build this and maintain this versus being able to extend something that already exists. But I think people just forget how much effort there's going to be down the road of not only building it, but then also bug fixes and then any additional costs that come up with it. Or like you mentioned, adding documentation, like there is so much work that goes into like open open source projects and everyone contributing to it, that then to have an internal project like that, I think unless you've done it, then you're just not aware. So when you're doing that cost benefit analysis, you don't actually know the cost. So yeah. I see how that's an easy one to fall into, but I'm, I'm still with you to avoid it as much as possible. I think the other category of things that comes to mind, and this is probably the most obvious based on ThoughtBot and the way that we approach software, but it's situations where I've fallen into more of a waterfall, big design upfront, non-iterative workflow. And typically this is working with a team and I try to express my preference for smaller pieces delivered more regularly, communicating with real users, et cetera. But for reasons that doesn't happen. And I remember very pointedly the, the specific instances and the like, I'm pretty sure I know how this is going to turn out, folks, but I think I've said everything I can say here. And I guess we're going in this direction. And so we all go in that direction. And then, man, the I told you so moment four or six months later is not worth it at all. It wasn't fun. I didn't want that moment, but ended yeah. up with that moment. 
Well, it still doesn't feel good. And like, even if you're right, like you'll necessarily feel good about being right just because then it's still painful for everyone. Yeah, I think the one caveat on that is in the context of regrets, the thing that I regret probably is not pushing a little bit harder, I think, or even compromising a little too much on that front and not trying to to bring it back in. There was a particular app that I worked on where there was a spreadsheet of features and it it was broken out into all these different sections and they all sort of flowed in a sequence very linearly. And it was the job of our team at the start of the project It took us roughly a week to estimate all of the different things. And each day, I remember I came in and I would voice my disagreement with the process. But I also don't want to be just the contrarian who stamps his feet and says, no, that will never work as far as I can tell. And so I tried to find whatever the most pragmatic version of expressing my alternative point of view. But unfortunately, I didn't win. And I guess my regret is not trying harder on that front. But I don't know. Maybe I did find a reasonable line there because you can only push so hard. Yeah, I was going to say what you just said now, where like that is a hard one to balance, where it only feels appropriate to push so hard. And then if someone has taken our advice and listened to us and they still say no, at that point, like, I don't feel comfortable. Like, what's the alternative to just not do the work? And that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel like the right answer. So it sounds like even though it feels like a regret and something that you acutely remember, in that case, you did share your opinion, but maybe going back, you would share it differently, or maybe you would try to be a little more persuasive, perhaps. Yeah, that, that or perhaps try and find more opportunities along the way. So not treat this as a, a binary decision that happens at the beginning of the project. And then like, all right, well, I wasn't able to convince them. Now we're in this mode. Try and find more opportunities along the way to sort of revisit that decision and even in small ways try and push on that. I think I probably ended up in a mode of this is how we're doing now. We're walking along this path. But yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that because that's often how my conversations go where I always feel like the first time I bring up a topic, I'm just testing out the waters like depending on the situation that I'm in. And then I kind of like get a feel for everyone, how their opinions are, who's dug into which opinion. And then I'm like, okay, it's a little bit of recon to figure out who feels what way and why this is important to them if I feel like I disagree. And then I've got all these other incremental opportunities to bring it up again to be like, oh, what do you think about this? Or And try to reintroduce it so it's something over time. Because as someone who is also being pitched a new process, if I were in the other person's shoes, like I may say no today, but then if you catch me next week where I've had time to think about it, then I may be more open to it. So I I like that idea that sort of incremental trying to be persuasive versus, oh, well, I wasn't persuasive enough today, so I should just give up kind of attitude. But actually, while we're circling around the topic of estimation, we did get a question on Twitter recently, which was asking us if we had ever done an episode on providing estimates for new work. So I thought, I don't know, let's dig in. Let's talk about that a little bit more. What do you think about providing estimates for new work? Yeah, I love talking about estimates. And I believe we did talk about this subject briefly in a previous episode, uh, episode 172, that's titled What I Believe About Software. I think that's still one of our favorite episodes that we've recorded to date. Well, it's like a year old now. So let's see if we still believe the same things we said then. We could have totally changed who we are by now. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) So let's see. That's kind of a broad question to talk about estimates. So is there any particular area that you think we should start? Like, are we talking like if someone's estimating a whole new project and uh, I say let's start at the top. Estimates, yay or nay? Um, Yay. Yay. Okay. I was probably a nay for more of my career. I recently have come around to a subtle yay. Uh, (laughs) Subtle yay. (laughs) But yeah. So how about estimating a total project? What do you think about that? Nay on that one. Interesting. 
I'm amused how we've gone with this yay or nay format. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should get more specific. <laughs> but no, it's it's a good sort of like feel reaction for an entire project. I'm going to say nay, just because there's often too much. Like mm-hmm. I know most of the time our estimation is going to be wrong. But the reason I like estimation is for all the conversation that it brings up. And so estimating an entire project is going to be very hard. It's likely going to be wrong. And it just doesn't follow the agile process that we that we strongly believe in. But then breaking it further down from there, if we are doing estimations for individual sprint work or feature work, then I still like the estimations, especially when they're held loosely in the sense that as a team, we look at a piece of work. Do we think it's adequately scoped down to do we understand the requirements? Do we understand the value, how to test it, the work that needs to be done? And then what's the size of that work? Do we think this is a very short ticket? Do we think this is something that will take more engineering lift? So that's why I'm a fan of something that feels less relevant to numbers and scoring and points and having estimations that are more like small, medium and large. And even if we need extra large to sort of like highlight, I think, as we'd mentioned earlier, that those are the pieces of work that need to be broken down further. or We don't feel confident that we know the work that needs to be done. But then it's really important to me that those numbers are only expressed or those estimations are only expressed internally to the development team and anyone who's working and is working closely with that team, because then each day in standup, we can change that number. So it's interesting kind of circling all the way back to when we started the episode, I was talking about working on a ticket that has two points assigned to it. Like I know each day in standup, I'm giving an update where I'm at with the ticket, why it's taking longer, what was different about it that we didn't realize in the estimation period. And that is communicating with the team that even though we initially went into the work thinking it would take this long, it's going to be a while longer. But I've never gone back and re-estimated work. Have you ever done that? I don't think so. And I don't think I would want to. That seems like a thing I would definitely not want to do. Yeah, I feel like the benefit of having estimations is more for that initial reaction, but it's not something that I need to go back and actually capture the valid number or the valid amount of work that went into it. I guess now that I say that, I I think my answer is slightly different. I have not gone back and re-estimated and put that into a system of record or anything like that. But for me, estimation does have value when, say, two developers are discussing a feature and we'll say, like, oh, I think it's a four, I think it's an eight. Oh, okay, we should talk more to figure out why there's that gap there or if it's bigger, et cetera. And basically to to uncover unknowns and to try and figure out, do we understand the shape of this work in front of us? Do we understand how we would implement it? And then I think the other facet of that is communicating that to product so that the product team can make decisions. Basically, like they know in their mind the value of a feature. And ideally, we're providing them a representative cost. And so they can make the the value judgment of, is this new feature, this bug fix, or whatever it is, worth the assumed cost? If I do find that, like, oh, no, this thing is four times as big as I thought it was, I'll often try and prioritize talking to product again and saying, like, hey, just managing expectations here. This has blown out of proportion. I still think it's valuable work. Maybe we uncovered something that we think we should refactor in the code. So we highlight that or we recognize that this is a valuable enough feature that even with that, you know, we still recommend continuing. But having that opportunity, that communication point of, hey, the last time we talked, we said roughly this. 
now we're talking it's changed a little bit and i think that's that continuous conversation that i think is useful but i i'm almost a fan of throwing away the estimates after having the conversation rather than keeping them around and again i really like what you were saying of use it as a mechanism to scope the work down to break it into the small pieces and then you're just working through the small pieces and it's not that you know that a two became an eight it's something grew more than a few days like Almost none of our work ideally should take more than a few days. There are certainly some things that will happen, but it would be great if we can always be breaking it down and communicating the deliverable and what this thing is in those small iterations. Yeah, I strongly agree with everything you said. I was kind of thinking of a way to sort of highlight my overall philosophy with estimation. And I think it's very much in line with yours where I love it for the communication I get very nervous when it's communicated outside of the team that came up with that estimation because it no longer feels like a safe space to provide that initial estimation if you know someone's going to hold you accountable to it. And then any other process that is added that is also based on that estimation. So anytime an estimation gets treated as like a source of truth, I think that's when I start to no longer like the use of estimates. And I get nervous about relying on that data as I think it just often doesn't work out that way. And then it could turn into some other concerns with the team if it's used to like judge an engineer on like how well they're doing. Did they complete two points or four points or how many points are they completing each week? The system will be gamed. Yeah, well, and I mean, a lot of us are competitive. So as soon as you put points on a scoreboard, like we want to be at the top of the scoreboard. (laughs) Maybe you do. Uh, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) No, probably I would do the same. And especially if it like if those conversations become real in any way and if any job impacts start to happen from that. Any performance reviews. Yeah, exactly. I think related to the whole idea is the idea of sprints. And so when you're breaking work down into these one, two, four, however many weeks you're doing it, but you're saying work is compartmentalized into these little slots. That just doesn't feel true to me. Like one of the wonderful features of software development is I can ship every day. I guess iOS or or native software where you have to go through an app store review and things like that does constrain it. But if we're working on the web and we can constantly release a new version of this software, why would we want to constrain more process onto that? Our colleague Herman has a wonderful post called Say No to More Process. And I absolutely love it because it just boils down this idea of what's the minimum amount of process and rituals and things that you can get by with. And when you feel pain, what do you do? How do you react to that? Do you throw more process at the problem? And I think sprints feel like one of those things. It's a way to control the situation and try and have more understanding of when things are going to land and whatnot. But my stance is, again, I don't think it's useful to communicate all of the features out. And so in my mind, it's very useful to say, like, if there's any one thing that's really important in the next few weeks, let us know. We'll prioritize that to the top of the backlog, get it done as soon as possible, and then you have it. Sometimes there are things like there's a marketing launch or there's a conference or there's some reason that we're constraining the system, but now we're in deadline conversation. We're not saying how much effort does this thing take. We're saying this thing must be done by this date. And again, deadlines can be terrible, but I also think they can be useful. And so don't over-constrain your system, I guess, is the main thing in my mind. You can't have all of them. You can't have sprints and deadlines and story points and all of those things because there's too much there. I agree. Yeah, that's a lot. I love that you mentioned Armand's blog post because I'd forgotten about that one. And it is such a great blog post that talks about the fact that when something happens, how do you respond to it? And I want to recognize that product managers have a difficult job of where they are trying to align all the upcoming work and then help get it scoped. 
but then they're also trying to communicate to all the exterior teams as to when something may get shipped and then trying to prioritize based on that and give feedback to everyone. So I want to be very supportive of their role and constantly communicate to them where I'm at with the work, which work is prioritized, when I think work is going to take longer than we initially suspected. So yeah, I think that's why I'm still, I very much like the idea of providing a loose estimate upfront for specifically scoped work that we've talked about as a team and then communicating updates daily. So then they have the ability to then respond to how my work is going. And no more sprints. I do very much like the iterative approach that we take. I just, I like to give the name a hard time sprinting because sprinting implies that we are running as fast as possible. And like you said, that's not sustainable. But overall, my stance on estimates is I think they can be a very positive tool and I like to use them for slices of work, but for larger projects, then I try to avoid them as much as possible or at least communicate that they are loose estimates and I would like a chance to update them each day as I learn more. Sounds great. Well, I think on that note, we can wrap up. Cool. Let's wrap up. One quick note before we leave, this will be our last episode for the next two weeks. So we're going to take two weeks off for some holiday things. And then we will be back with one final episode just before the new year. So keep an eye out for that. Show notes for this episode and all others can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show, and we will leave a link in the bottom of the show notes so you can get to the iTunes page nice and easy. If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you just before the new year. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.